0: It's true, isn't it, that our hearts are so filled with thanksgiving this morning unto the God of heaven to permit us to assemble in the way that we have. This first day of the week that we have been especially commanded by Him to set aside the opportunity and the time to offer worship to Him, and we're thankful for the honor and the privilege that's ours to do that because we wish to glorify His name and exalt His will. We've done that in the songs that we've sung and the prayer in which we have approach the god of heaven and for the next few moments i hope that you and i can open the pages of the sacred text and allow it also to be a strong force in our life you'll notice on the wall to my left the lesson that i'm entitled for today is the following jesus in bitterness is the title of it as you'll notice it shows on the one on the back and now it's available on the one on the front as we and I devote the next few moments to giving consideration to this topic, I hope it'll be something that can be a great reminder to you and to me. I believe it would be appropriate at this time to say that last Wednesday evening we had a powerful service centered around song and centered around prayer. We especially approached God earnestly on behalf of a number of issues and problems facing our land. Facing our community, facing the church as it's considered around the brotherhood. And we prayed to God for those things. It was a very encouraging time. And indeed, as we appreciate some of the behaviors and the conducts that can be problematic, bitterness is one of the things that you and I see from time to time. How do we deal with it? What does the Bible say about it? These opening comments, it would seem to me, would be reasonable for us to consider. So let's think for a moment as we introduce our lesson in the following way. We each know that there's a wide distinction in the presentation of some individuals. There are those known for their sweetness, their kindness, their gentleness. There are others who seem to be known for their rather overt aggressiveness, the nature that surrounds quite often what might be described as bitterness, ugliness considerations that are very hurtful to others. What does the Bible have to say to you and to me as we think about the challenge that sometimes is ours when the world brings great burdens upon us and maybe we're tempted to behave in a way like that. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, I think as we're about to see, bitterness is quite frankly a weapon used by the devil that brings much fruit for his cause. It, in fact, is something he frequently employs to make strong feelings of division and strong considerations that can do great harm. As you and I study it, why don't we begin like this. I've tried to divide the lesson into several portions. Let's start with a definition. What do we mean by bitterness and what does the Scriptures mean when it makes use of that term? The Greek word that appears in that text that was read in our hearing just a moment ago in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 31 and 32. That word translated bitterness is the word pikria. Now, I've spelled it in English, P-I-K-R-I-A, but of course in Greek it was the corresponding Greek letters. But you'll notice immediately that that word originally, as near as I was able to find, it had distinction and strong reference to a plant which itself was poisonous, or at least which produced inedible fruit. In other words, it was something that you avoided. Ingesting, it was a bad thing. It was very distasteful, to say the least, if not overtly very dangerous. You'll notice in Hebrews 12, 15, it appears that that thrust of that word is what is there because the Hebrew writer directly referred to the root of bitterness a particular behavior described in that chapter that would ultimately produce what was so very toxic and poisonous. But not only that, might we notice, the word came to refer to what was understood to be wickedness, sometimes extremely so. In Acts the 8th chapter, you remember Simon the sorcerer who himself was converted to the Christ. While he labored there in Samaria, deceiving and bewitching people, he heard the preaching of Philip, and he too himself was converted. But following that, he desired to buy the power of the Holy Spirit with money that he could transfer it himself. You may recall what Peter said to him, Thou art in the gall of bitterness. Simon, what you have thought to do, what you have intended to do, is an overt act of ungodliness. It is wickedness. Not only that, you might notice what the Word, of course, came to recognize, perhaps even more generally, having reference to resentfulness and spite, having reference to a hostile attitude of animosity. And today, isn't it true, we still seemingly associate bitterness so often with that. That person who's bitter has within him an attitude of resentfulness, perhaps holding a grudge, perhaps with an attitude of interior consideration that's very bitter to to someone else. Maybe in light of all those things, it's certainly easy to see what problems that kind of behavior and what kind of attitude that might bring. Obviously, it brings an element of distance. One doesn't really wish to have anything to do with someone to which one is bitter. One doesn't often experience the nature of a family kind of closeness and a strong sense of forgiveness and an attitude of encouragement to one if you're bitter against them. As I think about the nature of bitterness and what this opening definition has brought before us, you'll notice the Greek word that you and I have seen so far, it only occurs four times in the New Testament. Only four. We've looked at one of them. In fact, we've mentioned the second one. That text in Ephesians 4 that Joy read earlier is, of course, a prime usage of it. The Hebrews twelve fifteen 15 passage is a second one. Notice the other two. The first one in Acts eight twenty three we mentioned in passing as it related to Simon, that sorcerer. That text in Romans chapter 3. You and I probably recollect that in that chapter, the Apostle Paul made a strong presentation about the character of the Jews and what their behavior had been. Notice verse number 10. There's none righteous, no, not one. And he went on to describe the feet and the tongue and the other aspects of these who were unrighteous. And in the midst of it, they were guilty of bitterness. I would say so far the language of the New Testament seems to be strongly opposed to this. All four occurrences have not been good. There's more, however, to be said. Did you notice at the bottom one comment I felt worthy of observation? Those four occurrences, not a one of them occurred in the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Not a one of them occurred in a way referring to Jesus. Our Lord was never described as bitter. He was never described as a person possessing the attribute of bitterness. Maybe that by itself is a helpful thing for you and for me to consider, and we'll develop that, in fact, more thoroughly as the lesson proceeds. The second point of the lesson is this. We seemingly appreciated in passing the negative aspect of this bitterness, but let's be much more direct about it. I'm sure we each appreciated in that Ephesians 4 passage that bitterness has some terrible company. Bitterness finds itself in company with things that are so overwhelmingly negative. There were six things mentioned, six attributes, six characteristics in Ephesians 4.31. Let's note again what they were. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Six things, and Paul, the inspired writer, under the movement of the Holy Spirit, he said, put these things from you. That's one of God's ways of specifying the fact that this is a sinful thing, and it needs to be removed entirely from your disposition in any negative or at least ungodly attributes of it. As we develop that, you'll notice... The company it keeps, every one of them seems to relate directly to considerations of attitude, dispositions of the heart, one by one. Look at them again briefly. Following bitterness, mention is made of wrath. The thought of wrath relates to extreme severity and what anger leads to when it reaches its head. Wrath, you see, has a strong aggressiveness attached to it. But following wrath, there is, of course, anger. Now, anger by itself is not something evil. Aren't we told in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry and sin not. But some things that are so challenging to all of us, I'm sure, is this. Anger properly and kept within its limit can be such a useful thing for the benefit of those with whom we're trying to deal. But when it gets out of hand, when it goes too far, when words are allowed to be spoken that are apart from the nature of what God would have us be, or actions also have developed, we notice anger when it reaches that has reached too far. That kind of anger is something that leads us to note the next one. Clamor. Maybe that's not a familiar word in some ways to us, but that word in its original usage had to do with Yelling or angry shouting. Have you ever known of someone who, when they lose their temper, their voice rises so high, they're shouting to you? And they're doing so with a seemingly mean-spirited spitefulness. That's clamor. Paul said, put that away from you. Apart from clamor, you'll notice he next makes mention of railing. The King James translation called it evil speaking. It has to do with blasphemy. Someone falls into swearing or using profanities or other elements of vulgarity. They speak what's unclean. They've allowed themselves to lose control. Have you known someone like that? Maybe you and I have had to interact with others, and we dread it because we know what their past history says about what they might do. The last one in the list was malice. It relates, in a way, again, to an attribute of evilness manifested in grudging character, resentfulness, and those things that go with it. I'm sure we all noted, though, that one of the first words in that verse was, Let all. Paul didn't say some, not a little, not portions thereof. Everything in relation to these that's sinful, Paul admonished the Ephesian brethren to put it away from you. And the one that headed the list was bitterness. Let all bitterness be put away from you. When you and I then think about the attribute of bitterness, it sounds a little bit like the statement Paul made to the Colossians in chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Wasn't it to them, he said, let all of these things be put away from you? And he gave a listing. A listing that included things like covetousness and idolatry and lying. Just as surely as we see these things, isn't it a constant reminder? We live in a world and other people sometimes will behave in ways and conduct themselves in ways and challenge us in ways that may lead to our own attitude becoming to the point of it's bitter. And we must carefully guard it that that not happen. In fact, you'll notice that bitterness, according to the very next verse, seemingly stands powerfully opposed to some things. Let's note the fullness of that text again. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and clamor and evil speaking and malice be put away from you and be ye kind. He has listed six things to put away and now he encourages the development of this thing. Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you it would appear that those first six stand opposed to the development of the, la- of the second verse, verse 32. Things like kindness, things like tenderheartedness, things like forgiveness. And doesn't it seem rather obvious that one who expresses or feels a strong element of bitterness is not likely to forgive even when that person asks it. Even upon the repentance of that person, one will be likely to harbor feelings of resentment and to harbor feelings whereby forgiveness would be difficult to grant." I'm sure we each can imagine the scene not only in the first century, but even in our lives today, where these kind of behaviors still are challenging, aren't they? As we develop that slide more thoroughly, think about some of those godly characters of the Bible. Do you quickly associate bitterness with them? I believe we'd all say no. I chose only a very few, but what about Joseph? Here was one who his brother sold him, and he ended up in Egypt, and he ended up ultimately in prison. I wonder what thoughts crossed his mind during that few years. Where's dad? Why hadn't he come to get me here? Surely my brothers didn't mean this, but yet they hadn't come back. How easy would it have been for him to be bitter? to think of them what would never be forgiven. And yet when he rose to stature and they finally came, of course, to get proper food, he ultimately shed tears of joy over being able to see them. And all the while they were sure that he held grudges to them. They were even fearful that once their dad died, he would take vengeance on them. He had to assure them, you don't understand. God has elevated me and brought me to this place to save you to offer to you what otherwise you would not have access to." Joseph wasn't bitter to them. What about the next one, Moses? There was a man who led the children of Israel and so often was faced with their complaining, so often faced with their actual challenge to his authority. Korah and his group in number 16 You take too much upon you. All the people are holy, including us. Even his own sister, Miriam. Even Aaron. They too challenged his authority. And how easy would it have been for Moses to behave in bitterness? You got what you deserve, Miriam. You're now leprous. We read all of that in Numbers chapter 12. But yet, when she was afflicted with leprosy, Moses prayed to God. God for Take this from her. Moses still cared deeply and loved her and was not in any way motivated by bitterness. What about Daniel? That little 12-chapter book, The Last of the Major Prophets, Daniel was such an interesting character. Though young he was, and off into that foreign land of Babylon he went, we nonetheless find that he himself was in such dire considerations we remember later, his devotion to God ultimately brought him into a lion's den. He could have been bitter about all of that. He could have been bitter to, toward God. God, why would you let me and my family be sometimes killed and taken this way? Didn't you love us? You promised you'd take care of us. Why didn't you do it? You ever heard someone today, why'd my daughter get cancer? Why'd my son die in a car wreck? God, and they shake their finger at him in bitterness... To the God of heaven, may we be awfully, awfully mindful that bitterness, as you and I see it in the lives of these others, they weren't given to it. What about Paul in the New Testament? We can't read 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 and following without a lump in our throat, can we? A man who suffered shipwreck, beaten, perils night and day, here and there, and all the while for the love of the Lord and the love of the gospel was he bitter oh he wasn't bitter he said I've become all things to all men and I might by all means save some 1 Corinthians nine twenty three and following here was a man motivated not by bitterness but by just its opposite no wonder then in light of the way we close that slide we even remember Jesus he wasn't given to bitterness either And yet there's scarcely a thing in his life you and I can't mention in which it could have developed into it. I would ask as we do that somewhat more noticeably in a moment, we're going to pick a few of the scenes of his life. And we're going to obviously ask the question, in light of sometimes the behaviors we see in others, couldn't it have been easy for him to become bitter? But yet he did not. In fact, he behaved in just its opposite It is with that in mind. Let's look at the next point. Aside from the definition and aside from that sinful character, notice one of the things that seemingly so often can develop into bitterness, and that's impatience. Something as simple as impatience. Let's start that consideration like this. Our Savior, as He began His public ministry, it wasn't long before He prayed earnestly all night long In Luke 6, verse 12, And in the morning He called twelve of His disciples, and He chose them to be apostles. As He selected them, they were going to occupy an incredibly important position. They were going to be His witnesses. That is to say, they'd be eyewitnesses of Him, His actions and the nature of His resurrection, and they would be the ones who would carry that message after His departure it was to that twelve, to that group, that we find statements reminding us of this. In John fifteen, twenty seven, you, he said, will be witnesses of me. It was they who were prompted in John sixteen thirteen to be guided into all truth by the work of the Holy Spirit. It was they who themselves, in Acts 1 verse 8, then after the Lord's ascension, they were going to be witnesses unto the Master in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Oh, what importance those gentlemen had. But yet, as you think about those apostles, they had the privilege of witnessing the Master. They watched Him teach. They watched Him work miracles. They watched Him instruct. They watched Him interact with people. They watched Him and they should have learned so much. They should have imbibed in their spirit the nature of what it was because didn't Jesus in John 14, 9 say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That was after Philip had asked, Lord, show us the Father. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen Him. That embodiment of Him in the sense of behaving in the way the Father does. All of that brings us to this. How did Jesus then interact with those apostles when they disappointed Him? How did He interact with them when they appeared so confused? How did He interact with them when they let Him down? And it did happen, didn't it? I would ask you to notice in Matthew 15, verses 16 and following. Jesus previously had just spoke a rather memorable parable. It had to do, of course, with the fact that every plant which my heavenly Father planteth not shall be rooted up. Of all the apostles, Peter came to him and said, What does that mean? Declaring to us the parable. Now by that point, Peter had already been privileged to hear the parable of the sower. He'd already heard the greatness of the parable of the terrors of the field. He'd already been apprised of the five other parables revealed in Matthew chapter 13. He'd seen Jesus work many miracles. He'd seen him interact, and now he still asks, What do you mean by this parable? Every plant which my heavenly father planteth not shall be rooted up. I would submit it might have been easy for Jesus to reply, Peter, you gotta be kidding me. You don't understand it yet. Where's your head? And yet, do you notice how Jesus did reply to him? Rather tenderly, but yet firmly. Peter, don't you yet understand? I could just hear Jesus as he with perhaps an element of disappointment in his mind, but yet he never allowed it to reach the point of bitterness. You'll notice as I make mention of that one, One, I suppose, could make mention of many of the other disciples. I chose to to pick this text. In this case, only one chapter later in Matthew 16. One more time, here the entire group of them find themselves in a position. The Lord has just taught about the signs. After all, a group had come and said, show us a sign. Jesus said, you look at the sky and you properly interpret it's going to rain or it's not. It's not. You mean you can look at the sky, but yet you can't tell the nature of what things you've seen in me? And in that sense, again, the Lord, no doubt, was greatly disappointed, but He did not become bitter. He used it as an opportunity to instill within them a rather remarkable set of teachings. You may notice verses 6 and following of that same chapter. Rather amazing, isn't it? It shows a man, namely Jesus, who was in control of his emotions. He did not develop into bitterness. As you think about that, may we be quick to say that all of us as parents have to be mindful of this, don't we? Our son or our daughter, we've told them before. We've instructed them before. We've even warned them before, and they do it again. It's easy, isn't it, if we're not careful, maybe, to fall into an element in bitterness whereby our relationship with that one will be harmed. It may reach the point of being irreparable. And that's so dangerous. You'll notice Jesus did not allow that to happen. Though the apostles misunderstood many times and though they were confused. And that would even remain true until the time of the Master's death. For even after it in Acts 1 verses 7 and 8, they still didn't fully understand But the Holy Spirit led them into all truth, and a part of that truth is warning us about the danger and sinfulness of bitterness. Maybe as we close that slide, it prepares us for the next consideration. We've looked at these three so far. What about a fourth one? Something else that the Bible reveals to us about bitterness. The basic nature that it seems to have of being an unloving thing. Indeed, to be an unloving thing. Let's start like this. Isn't it true we would all readily agree that as we read the New Testament, we know for sure that love is one of the basic truths and the basic characteristics of Christianity. Jesus said it so many times. John 13, verses 34 and 35, "'Love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have loved one for another.'" And then two chapters later in John 15, 12, Love one another as I have loved you. He said it twice to them on that night prior to His crucifixion. He did not want them to lose sight of that truth. Love one another. Not only that, in 1 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 1, we find that chapter so often regarded as the love chapter of the New Testament. We turn to that chapter for a great encouragement Often we cast the spotlight on verses four and following, but what precedes it in verses one, two, and three, what precedes it is a reminder of how vital love is. Though one speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity or love, he has become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. The most eloquent man ever was, no matter what he preaches, if it isn't motivated by love, it's like a clanging gong. It's like a sounding brass. Look at the next two verses. Though I have the gift of prophecy, though I have all mysteries and all knowledge and all faith and have not love, I am nothing. Verse 3. Though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. How important is love? What you say it's exceedingly important? Surely Paul has said that. Jesus said that. In 2 Peter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7, as that list of the Christian graces is presented to you and me, the seventh one added, love. Maybe it is with that in mind. What then about the Master Himself? Jesus went to a cross. We all know that. How easy would it have been for him to be bitter toward the ones driving the nails in him, to be bitter to the Jews who sent him there, to be bitter to Pilate who in weakness and spinelessness would not set him free. The Lord wasn't bitter to any of them. In fact, you may remember, he prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While hanging on a cross, he prayed, he prayed for the very ones who had done this, the one standing there at the foot of the cross, perhaps insulting him, reviling at him, laughing at him. He was not bitter. If the Master could do that, what about me? Could I not suffer a little inconvenience for the welfare of someone else? As you know, I often drive, of course, to Nashville. Traffic is no fun. None of us, I'm sure, think that it is. And I often see drivers weave in and out. I think it was just on Friday, in fact, that I saw a person pulled right in in front of another one. And sure enough, the driver of the car behind threw up a finger. I could see his head moving. He was so furious. I'm not trying to defend what the first driver did. It was inconsiderate and unkind. But we have to be careful about being bitter. And we have to be careful about holding grudges and behaving in a resentful fashion. Jesus never was. At the very bottom of that slide, we find highlighted in the Scriptures verses like these. But God commendeth His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I didn't deserve His blood, and neither did you. I was in a state of sinfulness, and He did that for me. Those on the cross, or those that were beside the cross. Jesus, of course, shed His blood for them. You see, having this attribute, then, of spitefulness, bitterness, seems so far removed from the loving nature of the Master, doesn't it? And maybe with that, we come near the close of our lesson this morning. One final observation. One of the things about bitterness that often is misunderstood, but yet we find it highlighted on occasion in the Word of God is this. We think about bitterness as it relates to a partition or a wall that you and I might erect in our behavior with another, but I might ask, what effect does it have on me personally? If I'm holding bitterness and if I'm a person that's bitter, how does it affect me One of the things you and I might notice is bitterness stands opposed to joyfulness. A heart that's filled with bitterness is not a heart that's joyful. It's not a heart that is able to rejoice. And yet in the New Testament so often that is highlighted to you and me. Rejoice in the Lord always and again I say rejoice. We read that in Philippians 4.4. And Jesus more than once made the statement to His own apostles that my joy might be in you. The closing words of John 14 and again in John 16. A person you see that is bitter is missing out on the sense of joy that comes with what God would wish that person to know and to be. There have been medical studies that have s- at least tried to highlight the kind of medical things like heart disease and other features like high blood pressure that might be a result of or a consequence of things at least reminding us of bitterness. Interesting, isn't it? Doesn't it help us see that it's better for us not to be bitter? It's not that it's just better for someone else, because you see, we need to be ready to forgive. Jesus said, if someone comes and asks you seven times to forgive them, yay, 70 times seven, Matthew 18, verses 21 and following, you have to be ready to forgive them. How about you and me today? I know we live in a world that often thinks bitterness is the way to go. You treat others the way they've treated you. You defend yourself at all costs, even if it runs roughshod over them and behaves toward them in a way that's unloving, unkind, ungodly, and unbitter, but rather bitter, and yet the Bible says just the opposite. It says, treat them the way you would want them to treat you. That's always going to stand as a very unique thing it did in the world of the first century, and it still does, doesn't it? As we close our lesson in today, this matter of bitterness concludes like this. Very short. The Bible encourages us to leave bitterness aside, to put it away from us, Ephesians 4.31, and to fill our heart with what's forgiveness, with kindness, and with tenderheartedness. Now, as you and I give consideration to that, You know that there are occasions when we in love will firmly interact with someone, and even when they do not respond as we would wish, we must still not become bitter. After all, the Lord didn't. And what about you and me today? The gospel invitation is, of course, extended, and we would use this time as an opportune time if there might be one or more in the audience that maybe has never become a Christian. You'd like to be overwhelmed by the joy that the gospel affords and you'd like to have your sins cleansed by the blood of Christ. That could happen today. It doesn't happen in any arbitrary fashion. It's by virtue of obeying what the Master has commanded. Believe in Jesus as a Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as a Son of God and then be immersed, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And if we could assist you in that way today, we'd be delighted to do it. If though you have become a Christian, but today you are not faithful, maybe bitterness has become a problem for you. Things in life have happened, and you've wanted to accuse God and blame God and blame others, and maybe that's erected walls of bitterness. You need to tear them down for your own good, and yea, for the good of those whom you might influence for the cause of Christ." If we could help you today by praying to God for you, we'd be delighted to do that. And if we could help you, why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?